This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Maria Gogu, a Senior Clinical Fellow in Paediatric Neurology at GOSH, who's talking to me about the first seizure episode in children. She will be telling me all about classification of seizures, clinical assessment of the first seizure episode in children, as well as an overview of management. This will correspond to several areas of the MRC-PCH syllabus under the Neurology section. We hope you enjoy the episode. So thank you so much, Maria, for coming on the show today. Hi, Emma. Thank you very much. So to start with, what would you like people to get out of this podcast? Well, I think it is really important for people listening to this podcast after that to be able to adopt a patient-centered approach when they have to manage a child with a first ever seizure, to be familiar with the most common classification systems of seizures, and also to avoid common pitfalls in everyday clinical practice and to be able to recognize benefits and limitations of various investigations. Okay, they sound like really good and important learning points. So I guess we should start with the very basics. So when thinking about a first seizure episode, what is the technical definition of a seizure? Mm. Well, if we want to provide a technical definition about what a seizure is, we would say that the seizure represents a transient change, a transient set of signs or symptoms, which are due to an abnormal neuronal brain activity. And when I say abnormal, I mean an excessive activity and synchronous neuronal activity. And this is a difference from epilepsy. I mean, many people think that seizures and epilepsy are equivalent terms. In fact, not all seizures are epileptic. And on the other hand, a patient with epilepsy will have seizures, but a patient with a first seizure may not have finally epilepsy. Right. Okay. I think, yeah, that's really important to establish. And when you're thinking about a seizure, I mean, obviously there's a variety of things. It could be any abnormal neuronal activity you said that's caused it. So do you have a good way of classifying seizures and the way you think about and approach seizures? Mm. In fact, there are many classification systems for seizures. And honestly, they may cause headache for someone who tries to read about them for first time. So I would say that for first seizure, a good way to classify them is first of all to provoked and unprovoked seizures. And when we say provoked seizures, we mean that there is a clear precipitating factor, a clinical condition which leads to the appearance of a seizure. On the other hand, when we say unprovoked seizures, we refer to seizures when a potentially responsible clinical condition cannot be found. And in the first case, in case of provoked seizures, what actually happens is that an insult impacts central nervous system and gives genesis to seizures. And this insult may come or may not come from nervous system. For instance, this insult can be 
a central nervous system infection, a stroke, a head trauma, but it can also be intoxication, a metabolic disorder like hypoglycemia, an electrolyte disturbance, a systemic febrile illness. I mean, a number of insults not coming from nervous system, but affecting nervous system and leading to seizures. And apart from this classification, we can also classify seizures according to their onset. And this means if they are focal or generalized. And in the case of a focal seizure, the seizure starts within a network which is restricted on the one hemisphere. In the case of generalized seizures, seizure starts from networks on both sides, on both hemispheres of the brain, but not necessarily including the whole cortex. We need to have in our mind that the focal seizure may secondarily become generalized seizure. And in sometimes we are not able to be sure whether a seizure is focal or generalized. So we use the term unclassified or unknown. And of course, we also classify seizures according to their symptoms, to their manifestations. So in the case of generalized seizures, we can have motor seizures or non-motor seizures. And when I say motor seizures, most of us, we can imagine tonic-clonic seizures or tonic, atonic, myoclonic seizures or combination of all those things. We can also have absences, which are generalized seizures, but with no motor manifestations. And in the case of focal seizures, we need to specify if they are associated with impaired awareness or preserved awareness. And again, if they are motor or non-motor. And in the latter case, we can have any of symptoms, including cognitive changes, sensory symptoms, behavioral changes, anything. What I would like also to highlight is that although classification can cause confusion to many who are not familiar with that, it is really important to try and adopt and use those terms because they, they serve communication purposes in a hospital, in a clinical team. And in fact, they make our lives quite easier. Yeah. And actually, it kind of helps you get your head around it when there can be so many various possible causes. It helps to have a structured or it helps me to have a structured way of thinking about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And sometimes classification can also guide appropriate treatment option if this is the case later. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something that we will come on to a little bit later in the episode, actually. So I guess now moving on to thinking about a clinical approach for a first seizure episode, how would you assess a child with this presentation? Are there any particular features to ask about in the history and what would you want to know about the child? Well, what really makes a difference is where the physician assesses the child. So if we talk about a child presenting to the emergency department with a convulsive seizure, we talk about a child that we see in our outpatient clinic who has recovered from a seizure. So this really makes a difference. I think that history and description of the event is the cornerstone for diagnosis of a seizure. Things that we need to ask are related to the seizure itself, to the event itself, as well as to the background history of the patient. First of all, it's important to ask who has witnessed the episode of seizures and ask them to describe what they have really seen. This person can be a parent, a carer, a teacher, a friend of the child, or just a stranger if seizure occurred in the middle of the street. Over the last decade, given that mobile and videos have been very popular, it is frequent that we have a video recording of a part of the event 
which can be very useful in clinical practice as well. Other things that we need to ask is where the seizure happened. It was indoors, outdoors. What activity was the child engaged when the seizure happened? For example, was the child playing a video game or watching TV? This could perhaps lead to think about photosensitivity as a trigger for the seizure. We need to ask about any precipitating factors like a head trauma, if the child had fallen before, if there were things in history like sleep deprivation or use of any drugs or alcohol use in an older child. And then it's really important to have a detailed description of the event. And for that purpose, as physicians, we need to use both open and closed type questions in order to obtain as many information as we can. We need to ask about tone, if the child was floppy or stiff during the event, how quickly the event was evolved, if there were any prodromal symptoms, if there were any asymmetries between two sides of the body, if eyes were open or closed, if there was any urinary incontinence, if there was any tongue biting. Uh, about duration of the event, and also to ask things about recovery of the child, if the child has recovered quickly, if there was any confusion after the event, how long this lasted, if there were any focal findings after the event, like the weakness of one of the limbs. So all those information are really useful when we obtain history after a first seizure episode. And regarding the background history, it's important to ask questions about birth, gestation, any early life concerns, developmental background of the child, learning difficulties, any recent travels or exposures to, to substances, as well as about the family history, if there are other family members with seizures or epilepsy, because all this information can help us with the diagnostic approach and identifying a cause about the seizure. Yeah, definitely. And then similarly, are there any features in particular that you would be looking for on examination of the child? What sort of examination would you do? Well, examination needs to be systematic. I mean, especially if we manage a child with a convulsive seizure, we need to be sure that the child is safe. So we need to adopt the ABCDE approach and make sure there is no need for support for airways, circulation. Then we need to perform a comprehensive neurological examination, assess the tone of the child, reflexes, look for any focal neurological findings, any differences from left, right side of the body, look at the skin. Sometimes there are skin marks which could point to specific diagnoses like neurocutaneous syndromes, which are related with seizures and epilepsy. Fundoscopy is also important as it can reveal high intracranial pressure. We need not forget to take temperature and see if the child is febrile because this will make us think about other situations and also look for any dysmorphic features which could point towards genetic syndrome diagnosis. And then how would all these clinical features, so both on history and examination, how would they help you narrow down your differential diagnosis and identify a likely cause for the seizure? Mm. Well, before that, it's also really important to say that when we approach a child with a first ever seizure, it's also very useful to do a number of baseline investigations, like measure a level of blood glucose, even with finger prick, which is quite easy in the setting of an A and D, do some baseline bloods to exclude any electrolyte disorders, and also perform an ECG 
as soon as possible. Sometimes those tests reveal a factor which has triggered a seizure. So we speak about provoked seizures, for example, in the case of an hypoglycemia or an electrolyte disorder. And otherwise, it's important to see if the child is febrile or not febrile. There is a special category of seizures, which is known as febrile seizures. And this affects children between six months and five years of age. Even, however, in this group of children, as well as in older children, the presence of fever is a red flag and makes us think whether a central nervous infection is present. In that case, we need to look for signs like neck stiffness, for instance, and guide further investigations like lumbar puncture. The presence of special dysmorphic feature can make us think about the genetic syndrome and ask for genetic tests to be organized. The presence of focal findings in our clinical examination will lead to ordering appropriate neuroimaging to exclude any structural brain abnormality, which would have led to, to the emergence of seizures. So yeah, if, even from a very first clinical assessment, we can have useful information and neuro our differential diagnosis. And when thinking about the differential diagnosis, obviously there's lots and lots of mm. potential causes for a seizure, but are there also conditions which might present like seizures but aren't actually seizures, or seizure mimics, I guess you would call them? Yes, in fact, there is a very big list of seizure imitators and sometimes it's really hard to differentiate them from real seizures. This list depends on the age of the child. So in very young babies, there are things like sleep myoclonus or breath-holding spells or shuddering attacks, which can be confused with a seizure. In older children, episodes of syncope can be, can be misunderstood and diagnosed as seizures. Cardiac arrhythmias like a long QT interval and Borgata syndrome can also lead to drop attacks and again, be considered as seizures. Complicated migraines, sleep problems, tics. Sometimes it's really hard to differentiate them from a real seizure episode. And of course, there are also the paroxysmal non-epileptic seizures, which actually reflect changes in the level of awareness and changes in the level of self-control, which sometimes can have motor manifestations and can be very easily confused with convulsive seizures. In order to be able to differentiate between all those seizure mimickers, it's important to be familiar with those situations, to have seen videos of children with these phenomena, to try and see video recordings of the patient we manage so that we try to determine whether this was a seizure or not. Again, diagnosis is challenging in many situations. I would like specifically to focus on single. It's not unlikely that a child with a, with a single during the event exhibit clonic movements of their limbs, which can be considered to be seizures by someone. This is not always the case. And uh, movements, clonic movements, jerks like them, can be very frequently encountered in children after a syncopic episode and be related to changes in blood supply to the brain. Also, there are features like urinary incontinence, which strongly point to seizures. However, we can also find them in patients with a syncopic episode. And another clinical sign is tongue biting, which again, it's considered to strongly point toward seizure diagnosis. However, even in, in children with a syncopic episode, we can have 
tongue biting, especially affecting the tip of the tongue, whereas in the case of the scissors, the biting affects mainly the lateral side of the tongue. And also I would like to focus on differentiating between a scissure and a paroxysmal non-epileptic episode. This is quite challenging as well. Paroxysmal non-epileptic episodes usually appear in older children, like older than eight years of age. They tend to last longer than a seizure, and they tend to fluctuate. So, I mean, convulsions tend to wax and wane, whereas in a real seizure, in a real convulsive seizure, convulsions usually decrease in frequency and increase in amplitude as we approach to the end of the episode. And also in the case of a non-epileptic paroxysmal event, we can also see that the child can sometimes be alleviated when we interact and talk to them. And sometimes they may preserve their awareness. So all those features point against seizure diagnosis. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, very challenging. And misdiagnosis is very frequent in clinical practice. Yeah, I can imagine it's really hard distinguishing them on clinical features alone unless you're very experienced. Talking a bit more about investigations, which I know you did mention earlier, the importance of doing a blood glucose and an ECG. What are the investigations that you would perform on every child following a seizure? Well, I will highlight again the importance of an ECG because sometimes it's omitted. Cardiac causes, heart arrhythmias are not very frequent. But they are life-threatening conditions, so diagnosing them can really be life-saving for a child. So we need to prioritize an ECG for every child with a first seizure, and more specifically, be sure to measure the QT interval to exclude a low QT syndrome. Regarding further investigations, if we have concerns about an acute intracranial insult, then we need to order an urgent neuroimaging scan. In the setting of an A&D, this is usually a CT of the hand, which can help us diagnose intracranial bleeding, a tumor, or other prominent structural brain abnormalities. And we need to order this test when we manage a child with focal findings in clinical examination or a child with acute encephalopathy, and we are concerned about an ongoing intracranial insult. Otherwise, when we manage a child after a first seizure episode, but not in the acute setting, I mean, when we meet a child after a first seizure in our clinic, or if the child has recovered and we don't have any urgent concerns about intracranial processes, then the neuroimaging test of choice would be MRI, which could potentially reveal a cause for the seizure. And another investigation which is used is EEG, electroencephalogram. I need to say that EEG is not necessary to diagnose a seizure. EEG is not a test which will tell us if an episode was a seizure or not. This will be mainly determined by clinical description, by what we have witnessed, what we have learned from history, or what we have seen in a video record. The utility of an EEG is mainly to help us classify and determine what type of seizure a child has had. So it's not necessary for diagnosis, it's mainly useful for classification purposes. We also need to have in our mind that there is a number of children who have epileptic seizures, but can have normal EGs. And also there are children with abnormal EGs, which have never had seizures in their life. And epileptic or abnormalities can, can be found even in up to 10% of EGs of normal children. 
Right. Okay. That's important to bear in mind, I guess. Who gets EEGs and MRIs in that setting? What would be your criteria for requesting an MRI or an EEG in patients following a first seizure? Because presumably not everybody who has had a single seizure gets one. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And it's important to be aware of the limitations of those tests. If, if we are confident and convinced that the seizure that child has had was epileptic in nature, I mean, if we have had an unprovoked seizure, we haven't been able to identify any clear trigger for that. And we are strongly concerned that this can be the first seizure of an epilepsy. Then it's reasonable to request neuroimaging, MRI, and an EEG. The EEG is usually more sensitive when it takes place closely, for example, within 24 hours to the episode of seizure, because it's more likely to reveal abnormalities and help us with classifying seizures. So I would say that when we are convinced that a seizure was epileptic in nature, it's reasonable to organize those tests. And regarding EEG, if, even if we are very convinced that we have an epileptic seizure, even if we come back with a normal EEG, there are ways to increase the sensitivity of this test. For instance, asking a sleep EEG, which can more easily reveal abnormalities, or performing some maneuvers during EEG, like hyperventilation and footing testing stimulation. And then moving on to management, how do you manage the first seizure episode? And when do you think about giving regular anti-epileptic drugs? Mm -hmm. Well, again, management depends on where we assess the child. In an A&D setting, we, we follow ABCD approach. And sometimes we have children in the A&D who present with a first seizure, which is prolonged and fulfills criteria for status epilepticus. So in that case, we have to manage those children as per APLS guidelines and administer rescue medication. So this is the management in an acute setting. Now, out of the very acute period, I would say that the cornerstone of management of a child with a first seizure is counseling. Counseling of the patient and also counseling of their family members and carers. Counseling needs to be individualized. So we need to explain what a seizure is. We need to guide them to recognize seizures in future if they happen again. It's very important to provide them with some information about the, the risk of recurrence of a seizure in future so that they are aware of that. It's very important to provide them with details of contact. I mean, to let them know who they need to contact if a child has seizures again in future. It's important for parents and carers to be taught first aid and basic life support so that they are able in future to provide first aid for the child if this is needed. And also it's important to give safety advice. For instance, for at least the first year after the first seizure episode, there is a number of sports which need to be avoided, including climbing or diving or cycling, especially without supervision. And this is the advice from the International Link Against Epilepsy Task Force on Sports and Epilepsy. So all this information needs to be provided to the family. It is also important to identify if there are in the family environment or in the life of that child factors which might increase the impact of a seizure, like emotional problems, mental health problems. If there are any safeguarding or neglect issues, if we have suspicions for a substance use so that we address those issues 
and appropriately refer child and family to services, and in this way try and prevent future appearance of seizures. Now, regarding starting regular management, this is really quite controversial, and it's something that needs to be discussed with a child, their carers and parents. If we have a provoked seizure, I mean a seizure after a clear trigger, like hypoglycemia, prognosis can be really excellent if we remove this trigger factor. So actually, we don't need to discuss about regular treatment. In the case of an unprovoked seizure, yeah, this is really a big question and needs to be individualized to family needs and to what parents believe or how confident they would feel to deal with a future seizure. Immediate onset of a regular medication can delay the recurrence of a seizure. So at least for a period of two years, it reduces the risk of having a further seizure. However, if we discuss about long term, it does not really prevent the appearance of further seizures. In the long term, treatment will reduce the risk of seizures whilst the medication is taken, but does not necessarily change the likelihood of a child being seizure-free when the medication is stopped. For example, the number of patients in remission five years after a first unprovoked seizure may not really be different. In other words, if a child is to have epilepsy, even if we start an anti-seizure medication immediately after the first ever seizure, epilepsy will appear. We can't really prevent it in this way. And of course, we also have emergency treatment options. And these options need also to be discussed with families, especially for children who have presented with a prolonged seizure, like status epilepticus, or with a seizure which led to cardiorespiratory compromise. But in all those cases, it's important to train parents for the appropriate use of those emergency medications. So in terms of prognosis, you mentioned that it kind of varies according to whether it's provoked or unprovoked. And if it was provoked, often the prognosis is good. If it's an unprovoked seizure and you're suspecting epilepsy, what is the likelihood of further seizures? Well, sometimes the first seizure which happens is so typical in, in appearance, which can lead to diagnosis of a specific epilepsy syndrome. For instance, a child with self-limited epilepsy with centrotemporal spikes, which appears with unilateral facial twitching or tingling and uh, nandles. It's quite typical as presentation and can point towards a diagnosis. In those cases, the recurrence risk prognosis depends on the underlying diagnosis and we will cancel the child and their parents accordingly. The most difficult thing is when we cannot diagnose a specific syndrome after a first unprovoked seizure. So in the case of a child who presents with a first convulsive seizure, normal investigations, no findings from neuroimaging, then actually long-term studies have shown that the risk of recurrence can, can be up to 30% after a really long follow-up period. Of course, there are factors which can modify this rate. For instance, a family history of epilepsy will increase the recurrence risk. The emergence of the seizures from sleep can also increase the recurrence risk. And I'm saying that because a child who has had a first seizure coming from sleep, it's possible that this child had already had unwitnessed previous seizures in sleep. So actually, this might not really be the very first seizure episode. 
and in the majority of cases, the recurrence, if, if it happens, this will happen within the first two years after the first C-reaction. Thinking a bit more about provoked seizures, I guess one of the really common causes of a provoked seizure is fever, so a febrile convulsion. Could you tell me a bit more about that and how you would assess and manage those children presenting with suspected febrile convulsions? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a very common pediatric problem. They tend to happen in children between six months and five years of age. Febrile seizures in general can be simple. And when we say simple, we mean they last less than five minutes. They are generalized and they do not recur more than once in the same 24-hour period. Or they can be complex, which means more prolonged, focal, and recurring within the same 24-hour periods. It's important to clinically examine the child, exclude the likelihood of an underlying central nervous infection, if we have clinical suspicion about that, we need to perform a lumbar puncture and start appropriate treatment. The presence of a complex seizure, it is a reason to perform a lumbar puncture, especially if this is the, the first febrile seizure the child is having. We might also consider lumbar puncture in the case of a febrile seizure if a child is quite young, I mean between 6 and 12 months, because in those cases, we cannot easily assess signs like neck stiffness. And of course, babies in this age group may not have been fully vaccinated, which again increases the risk for a CNS infection. And of course, if an infant is less than six months, by definition, we cannot say that this is a febrile seizure and we must always investigate it fully. And another situation where a lumbar puncture would be advisable is if the child had been previously treated with oral antibiotics in the context of the febrile disease, because this can mask some of the symptoms of a central nervous infection. I would like to highlight here that sometimes, even if we have strong suspicion about the CNS infection, we might postpone lumbar puncture if the child is not stable from a cardiorespiratory point of view or if we have any concerns about the increase in the cranial pressure. And in those cases, it's better to start appropriate treatment and perform lumbar puncture later. Their prognosis in the vast majority of cases is really good. When I say good, I mean febrile seizures often recur. So a child with the first febrile seizure in 50% of cases will have another febrile seizure until the age of five years. What I mean is that most of those children will grow out of that and do not develop epilepsy in future. So the risk of epilepsy after a febrile seizure is 1% to 2%, which is quite low. However, it is higher, this risk, if there is a background history of epilepsy in the family, if the febrile seizure was complex, if the child has a background neurological abnormality, like a neurodevelopmental disorder, for example, so those things increase the, the risk of developing epilepsy in future, and this might need to be communicated to, to the families. And there is also a number of children who have seizures in the setting of an acute illness, mainly gastroenteritis, but not having fever, actually. So this is commonly mentioned as febrile or febrile seizures. So we assume that seizures are due to the underlying infection, even if we don't have a febrile child, actually. And what I would also like to highlight in the case of febrile seizures, especially for younger babies, 
I mean between six and the 12 months, is that in some cases, especially when the seizure is quite prolonged, and if it affects one half part of the body, if it is, as we say, hemiconvulsive seizure, this can be a red flag because in a minority of cases, this could point to the diagnosis of a genetic condition, which is called Dravi syndrome. So this is something that the pediatrician might have in the background of their mind. So when they have febrile seizures in a young baby, which are prolonged and hemiconvulsive. So just finishing with our standard quickfire questions that we ask to everybody on this podcast. Firstly, are there any classic exam questions that tend to pop up about first seizure episodes? Yes, I think that history-taking and comprehensive physical and neurological examination for a child after the first seizure episode is a question which is quite likely to be asked in the setting of the college exams. And also differentiating features between seizures and syncopic episodes or paroxysmal non-epileptic episodes. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend? There is the website of the International League Against Epilepsy, which provides open access material for further reading about seizures. There is also the new update of the National Institute of Clinical Healthcare Excellence about seizures, which was updated in April 2022, and it's really useful. And for those who are more interested, they can register and attend the Pediatric Epilepsy Training One course, which is provided by the British Pediatric Neurology Association. And finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from today? Well, if I had to choose three learning points, I would say that we need to be open-minded when we assess a child with the first seizure episode. We need to have a broad differential diagnosis list and have in mind that not all all that seizes is seizure. The second thing is that our management of a child with a first seizure needs to be individualized and family-centered. So we need to have in our mind how to better support and empower the child and their carers after the first seizure episode, because it can be really distressing for the whole family. And third, do not forget to do an ECG after the first seizure episode. It can be really life-saving for a number of children. Great, thank you. Yeah, I think there are three really important points there. So thank you very much for coming on the show and for talking to me today, Maria. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRC-PCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.